Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Good physics day, everyone. If you keep statistics on these sorts of things, you may have noticed that I forgot to give my usual greeting in the previous episode. Mm-hmm, I know, dreadful. But technically, since this episode is a continuation of the interview from episode 28, then it still counts if I say it now, right? Hmm, I feel like a student arguing for points back. Anyways, yes, this is a continuation. Last episode, I started my conversation with Louis Delarier, Director of Science Teaching and Learning and Science Preceptor in Physics at Harvard University. We talked about some of his publications from 2011 and 2013. First, looking at the evidence of improved learning in classes taught with pedagogy based on education research, and then successes and challenges when it comes to training new teachers in transforming classrooms and departments from traditional methods to research-backed methods. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go check it out. This week, Louie and I move into talking about some publications from 2019 and 2021. It turns out that another challenge is present. Students can actually feel like they are learning more while passively listening to a polished lecture than engaging in active learning. We'll talk about that finding and what that means. Finally, we dive into his latest work on deliberate practice and how we might take the gains from active learning in the classroom and boost them up even more by transforming homework. Let's pick up where we left off. I want to move on to uh, now a 2019 article that you published at Harvard with McCarty, Miller, Callahan, and Keston. We've now established that students learn more when they are actively engaged in the classroom than they do in a passive lecture environment. But despite this overwhelming evidence, most instructors still use traditional methods, at least in large enrollment college courses. So why do these inferior methods of instruction persist? We just talked about some of the supports that are necessary to help faculty use research-based methods, but we haven't talked about the students yet. It turns out students are biased against active learning. Yikes. Uh, this was a major finding in the article, measuring active learning versus feeling of learning in response to being actively engaged in the classroom. So the students themselves don't feel like they are learning in these active spaces. Can you say more about this? What is it that they don't, that they don't like? That's a great question. And right off the bat, you know, I always say the same thing is that when active learning is implemented well, students like it. However, they will often prefer a highly fluent presentation, you know, from a, imagine a superstar lecturer, right? So it's hard not to fall for that. So that's, the distinction is very important here, and I'm happy to go in more detail. But in fact, let me tell you, in the dozen or so courses uh, that we've transformed at, uh, at Harvard, I mean, students love it. In fact, I would, I would even go further of everyone I know that is well-trained and who have implemented you know, have done a good implementation of active learning. I don't know any case where students did not respond well to it, right? Mm -hmm. so that seems to be mm -hmm. contrary to that study, but it isn't. It isn't. Is that there, there's something fundamental here, and it's a cognitive bias. Is that students are not biased against active learning? Is that they're instead biased in favor of perceived fluency? Mm, okay. That's all okay. of us, right? Even I fall for that in a colloquium. 
right? <laughs> like uh, this happens to all of us. You go to a colloquium and the speaker is, you know, very, very articulate and uh, you just feel great about it. And then your colleague says, I, I missed the colloquium. What happened? And then, you know, you, you, you know, you try to explain what you, what you learn and then you realize, whoops, I think I just fell for that. I fell for a you know, <laughs> feeling of learning. In, in thinking about what you just said there, you know, I, I had that experience uh, when I when I started my college teaching in 2010. Um, I uh, adopted modeling instruction. Uh, that was what the university I went to was was beginning to use. And the first year was a little bit tough because the students hadn't seen something like that before. But all of the instructors were adopting that. Uh, but but they, they did grow to appreciate what was happening. Um, I, I think the class went really well. And the following year, I s really stopped hearing any, any complaints about the style of the course because the students sort of knew this is what physics was at the university. It didn't matter what instructor they got. We were all doing this, this style of learning. And it's like, okay, this is how it's being done. And there seemed to be good stories coming from the students who were in the previous class of it. So, okay, this sounds, this sounds like something that's good. So there was, there was almost sort of the, the, the buy-in of, of having seen it work and that it's well, and that it was the only thing happening as well. But I feel like, I feel like that buy-in piece is, is something I'm, I'm seeing a little bit more and more come up in some of the literature and I'm beginning to appreciate a little bit more how, how that, that buy-in is an important piece to, to, kind of so-called break the, what is it, break the fourth wall to let students know, it's like, this is what's going to happen in, in the classroom this year. This is what I'm going to do. And this is why I'm going to do it. So what, what do you, what have you kind of seen on this, this buy-in aspect for students? Yeah. And in fact, uh, in that paper, we uh, do describe an intervention, something very, very simple, low cost, um, where, uh, another instructor actually spent 20 minutes um, at the beginning of the semester just, you know, giving a presentation, basically explaining to students the type of active learning they were going to experience and showing the evidence for its effectiveness and talking quite specifically about the results that we already knew in that paper about feeling of learning, mm -hmm. perceived mm -hmm. fluency, and their relationship to actual, actual learning. And uh, yeah, so students responded extremely well to that. And ever since we do the same intervention, we basically lecture students about the effectiveness, uh, the, the lack of effectiveness for traditional lectures. I'm joking. That was, uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so no, that works very well, which means what the message is that you shouldn't shy away from, you know, I wouldn't say selling it to students, but explaining it to students. Students are mm -hmm. smart. Mm -hmm. They're smart. In fact, when you do that, the questions you get from them, I, I learn a lot actually from their questions. So yeah, hmm. that's, that's right there at the top, uh, what you have to do. But I must tell you something, uh, even people like that are colleagues at other, you know, universities that are physics education researchers, you know, when they saw these results in that paper, they'd say, yeah, but Louis, we already know this. You just have to sell it to students. But I'm like, no, that's not the message in that paper. The message in that paper is that forget about selling it to student, is that this is a very powerful cognitive bias. Very powerful. That even me as an expert learner, I fall for. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's what we showed basically in that paper. In fact, the type of active learning that 
that I utilize is, is a very specific type that involves students working on activities. And then after they've worked on the activity, then I give them the feedback on it. So they don't get to have an explanation before the activity. With this type of active learning, Brad, um, we end up actually talking to students for about half the time, right? So this is, you could consider that sort of quote unquote traditional lecture, but it isn't because students were primed before you end up talking to students, but you end up talking for half the time. So even with this type of active learning, you do have to keep in mind this cognitive bias. Because sometimes I can see when I'm giving the student feedback. And by the way, it's the same thing with clickers. If you use that, you got to be careful, right? If, you, uh, if you're not careful with this cognitive bias here, you'll see that students are going to start to tune you out within about three, four minutes. So, yeah, so this cognitive bias, actually, it's not, it's not just about, uh, you know, selling, it, uh, selling the effectiveness to students. Is that this is something that's present in every lecture you're right and, and it comes back to what you what what you were saying is that i forget what the word you use was it was a, was a fluidity of fluency fluency the, the the fluency of of the lecture is desirable so i guess maybe it's the fluency of the act of learning can we can we show our students where where we're going with it it's it's sort of clear where things go in a lecture it's not always clear as clear with active learning it can be sometimes a, a bit more of a messy process and you're kind of jumping around from activity to activity so i i guess the key is it's like what if there's ways that we can make even kind of that 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 messy process of learning seem a little bit more a little more fluent how about this brad here's uh, here's something i know you'll find interesting so I said earlier that there's different types of active learning and you have to really think, you know, you can't make these broad conclusions about all active learning, but even when one, just pick one type of active learning, say peer instruction, you know, the most popular type, you know, using clicker questions in a certain way, um, you know, you can vary the intensity or let, I'm just making up a word here, learning density, hmm. right? How intense right? The learning experience is, right? You can vary that, the level of difficulty or something like that. So once you crank up the knob here, then you start running against this cognitive bias because, you know, strenuous cognitive effort is inherently disfluent, right? Mm. Think about one-on-one -on -one tutoring, which by the way, is the, one of the thing I I use the most whenever I discuss, uh, you know, physics education with anyone. One-on-one -on -one tutoring has been, with an expert tutor, by the way, has been shown to be the most, you know, effective learning environment, which is almost self-evident, right? So if you think about one-on-one -on -one tutoring, imagine like you, you tutor a student and now you, you start to turn up the knob here, where you start to make things a bit more challenging. You want to make sure that after an hour session, the student learns a lot. So the activities they're working on, just one-on-one -on -one tutoring are more difficult, right? The feedback they get from you, they really need to concentrate. After mm -hmm. that hour, students might say, hey, I'm mentally fatigued, right? Mm -hmm. It was difficult. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Because you've cranked up the knob, the student will not necessarily say or naturally feel like, hey, this was great, Brad, I want you to do that again next time. <laughs> It could be that next time you meet with that student, if you then make it a bit easier, then the student will respond better to it, but they'll learn less. Does that make sense? You mentioned about being at a, a colloquium or, or a conference and how you can just sort of sit back and, and listen and feel like you got so much from it. And yet I find that's, that's one of the, 
that's one of the traps I get into with, say, going to AAPT conferences where um, I sit and listen to all these great little short talks and then I come home and I have some notes in my notebook and I likely have done very little with, with any of that. Yeah. So, exactly. so they're, and, and yet when I go to, let's say a talk where, where they say, okay, I'm going to put you into to groups, you know, that's what I do with my students. And yet when I'm at a talk, I groan when that happens, like, oh no, I have to sit and do work and think. And of course I'm going to get more out of it. Uh, so, <laughs> so that's their, their, my bias has come forward that is like, I don't want to do work. I just want to sit and listen. It's like, I don't actually want to learn apparently is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And guess what, Brad? I mean, we're all, again, obviously I feel I'm very passionate about this topic, obviously, but, but you know, for you, for me, for everyone, when you're being put in a group, which I hate as well, by the way, uh, <laughs> if, if the learning density, if you will, is, is pretty high, then you might not necessarily feel comfortable with that. You, you know, you were quite challenged with people you don't necessarily know that well, right? Which is just like our students. And in our courses. Well, even you and I won't necessarily respond, uh, you know, favorably to that. We'll think, okay, okay, the next activity was not as challenging and it actually felt better, but you don't learn as much. Yeah, it's an interesting piece to keep in mind. Uh, well, I, I want to wrap up by looking at an article that you wrote with your Harvard cohort uh, this year titled Increasing the Effectiveness of Active Learning Using Deliberate Practice, a Homework Transformation. And and now that we've had this conversation, I'm realizing that you've talked a lot about the in-class, in-class, in-class piece. Now here, here is you beginning to look at that out-of-class piece and how that of course, is also something that we should be paying attention to. So the idea of deliberate practice has actually been a thread through each of the other articles that we've discussed. We, I, haven't brought it, I haven't brought it up, but I, I've seen that term come up in a few of the articles as I was reading them. So let's start with an operational definition and then, and then go on from there. So what is deliberate practice and how have you applied it during in-class sessions, for instance? And then we'll get into the, the homework part. Deliberate practice, you know, as a concept, it's, it's a set of fundamental principles that determine how people learn complex skills or complex tasks. Okay, so 30 years ago or so, psychologists like Anders Ericsson, actually, who is very sad, he died last summer, um, you know, started looking at how experts became experts, like, for example, uh, expert musicians, athletes, chess players, and so forth. And then they identified specific elements that are common across all domains, okay? So, so, so again, like everything, it's complicated, but, but you can boil it down by saying, first, uh, you have to have an expert tutor, or what's used in the literature is an expert coach, okay, that mm -hmm. first delineates the complex tasks, and then breaks the complex tasks down into subskills. That's number one. And that requires an expert to do that. And right there, you can see that that's what makes applying deliberate practice to the classroom, homework, or whatever difficult right there, right mm -hmm. off the bat. Because mm -hmm. how do yeah. you get an expert coach? Yeah. So then after that, of course, the learner then has to intensely practice the subskills. And what's equally important is that the learner has to receive immediate and targeted feedback hmm. on their practice right away. It can't wait the day after, a week later, or something like that. So right there, you can see that's a problem. It's difficult to do. And finally, as the learner is you know, practicing the subskills and everything, then now you need to synthesize those subskills 
and you need to allow the learner at the end to practice the complex tasks and they need to get feedback on that as well so that gives you a you know, that gives you an idea, basically, what deliberate practices. I can see, as you're saying, how challenging that can be in, in the classroom. It's like, of course, we have an expert coach, coach the, the teacher at the front of the class, but they're standing in front of 20, 30, 100, 400 people. So that, that one-on-one work is, is, is not possible. So it's, it's, I guess, finding other ways to, to mimic pieces of it as, as best you can. And... I think it's it's interesting that that maybe the homework is actually a place where that that can happen more now, uh, and I, I think with the technology that we that we have. So in in this paper that you published this year, you write we address the question of whether applying the principles of deliberate practice to homework can increase learning beyond what is routinely achieved with the existing active learning gold standard. So how did you transform the homework assignments? And were you, in fact, able to see additional gains in learning above and beyond what is seen in a classroom with these active learning strategies? Yes, of course. And by the way, uh, how deliberate practice is, uh, is, you know, is, is used in the classroom, of course, is all you need. Well, all you need. <laughs> At a minimum, you need those two key elements, which is students need to practice subskills, which, as I said, it requires an expert coach to define the sub-skills, right, to articulate them, have students mm-hmm. practice, and students need to get feedback in the classroom on the practice. So those are the two elements, practice the sub-skills and feedback, so at a minimum. So that's how we, you know, the active learning that we do, we can say that we use deliberate practice. Now, as far as the homework is concerned, the, the first thing I must say is that when you think about this, homework is obviously active learning, right? So it is interesting when you think about that. That's I remember years ago, that's what interested me. Um, I thought, oh, okay, now that we know active learning works well, then I know that we can now focus on increasing the effect- the efficiency of active learning, if you will, right? So, so anyway, so homework right there, um, you know, you think, uh, all right, it's active learning. Can I make this more efficient? Of course. Do we typically use deliberate practice in homework? Of course not. And at a minimum, uh, students are not getting, you know, immediate targeted feedback, right? Homework gets graded. They get the feedback a week later. That's typically what happens. So right there, you need to solve the problem of having students get immediate feedback as they do the homework. And you mentioned the word technology. And yes, of course, that you, you kind of have to use, you know, these, these platforms, right? Which are becoming more and more readily available now every year now which which is great uh but yeah so that's what we did we use uh you know one of those platforms and the students go on there they uh practice those sub skills and then as they do the sub skills then they can reveal hints hint number one hint number two hint number three all these things have to be developed by an expert coach it's really difficult to do or to do very well um, and then finally, uh, students can uh, see the, the detailed solution. So they get detailed feedback, you know, every step along the way. So no wonder that they learn more from homework, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. almost intuitive. So, yeah, so that's basically what we saw. Now, the thing that's interesting is that when you go from traditional lectures to active learning, you expect a certain learning gain. And it turns out that the learning gain that we got by transforming the homework is about the same, is on the same order as what you get when you go from traditional lectures to active learning. <laughs> so what wow. we showed 
actually is a three-year sequence in the same course. That's pretty cool, where year one, the course was stopped traditionally. Year two, we saw an increase in learning when the course was transformed to active learning in lectures. And then year three, of course, there was active learning in lecture, but then we added the transform homework using deliberate practice. And the amount, the learning gain, if you will, was about the same. That's pretty neat, right? You know, I I, th- I think of the of, of the leap you make when you go from sort of the traditional lecture based classroom to an active learning classroom as is like, wow, there's there's a significant change there to see that again happen with this transformed homework is is, uh, is sort of amazing. Uh, I, I wonder. So you're talking about the challenge of of writing these sub skill problems because you you'll, you think of like the you know, sort of a, a traditional challenging problem that you have to work through. There are certain concepts that the students need to grasp first. Maybe there's there's certain particular mathematical skills they need to have honed. So maybe one challenging problem has, you know, three sub-skills as part of it. Where can we, uh, and maybe it doesn't exist yet, is there is there any kind of compendium of some of these these sub-skills that are, are most important in, say, a given chapter of a physics textbook? Is that something that, that you know of that exists or is currently being written by your group or something like that? Yeah, no. Um, unfortunately, it's very much like what we discussed earlier about faculty quitting and the Carl mm. Wyman Science Education Initiative, where we got only one out of 70. And I told you this was the very best case scenario. So what you have in the paper there is the very best case scenario simply because every time that we've transformed homework and we've done that in about a dozen courses now, uh, it works because we actually use an expert coach and it's really demanding. So let me give you a very specific example. We've also had implementations that fail. Actually, I can think of two right now. Uh, One, it's really interesting. Okay, think about this. The implementation that I would say worked best or the one that's in well, there's four implementations in the paper, actually. Uh, but the, the main one in the paper, those semester-long implementations, uh, uh, the expert coach that we used okay, in that course, uh, which was, by the way, it was mechanics and ENM for life science majors. So that person was a graduate student who'd been teaching the course, you know, as a, as a TA uh, for several years. So that person knew student thinking very, very well, better than me. So that person designed really, really well-targeted sub-skills, which, by the way, you can only come, you can only use about 30 or so every week because you want to make sure the time on task doesn't explode, right? So another thing in the paper, which you, you I, I hope you notice, is that the time on task was pretty much unchanged, right? Even Yeah, that was surprising that you added more work and yet the time on task didn't increase because those harder those harder questions, they could answer more quickly. Is that basically what happened? Yeah, yeah, that, that's what happens. And just to be clear, the traditional homework, which is typically, for us, it was about 10 complex problems each week, right? Just traditional exam-like problems. So we kept the exact same homework but on top of that, we added about 30 sub-skills on average each week. So it went from 10 problems to 40. Now, granted, mm-hmm. the first 30 problems were much simpler, right? But still, like you said, we added work and the time on task remained the same. And the question is, how can we do this? How can I do that in my own course? Well, what I was in the process of telling you is an example where it didn't work. And it's 
it's, it's really hard to have it work. Why? Because you need an expert coach. So what I was going to tell you is that this grad student who successfully created those sub-skills and those uh, you know, physics course for life science majors went on. I used that same graduate student to do the same thing uh, for the same mechanics in the end course for physics majors. And we stopped halfway through the mechanics the first semester because it did not work. It was not well received by the students. Well, half the students loved it. The other half, they hated it, which you got to stop when, when you see that, right? And the reason why is that this person, this graduate student, Christina Callahan, by the way, was an expert tutor, an expert coach for, for the student population made up of life science majors, but was not yet an expert coach for the physics majors. So if you don't know their yeah. thinking, then the sub skills are going to end up being too easy, too hard, or not exactly what they need to work on and so forth. So we've had so many great topics today and, and I can see how we could easily talk for hours about this, but I want to tie up our conversation about your research and findings by reimagining the future. And you actually said something earlier about about project-based learning being a possible future. So I, I, I'm curious, maybe you want to expand on that or, or, or maybe you have something else in mind. What, what do you hope to see next in the world of science education? Um, yeah, well, a lot of things, obviously. But uh, <laughs> let's say the, 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 the top ones that come to mind, and I'll, I'll try to remember to say something related to project-based learning. Um, so, so as we discussed before, I would like to see a greater emphasis on retention of learning, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, instead of just end of semester measures, you know, you take students a year after, right? Like, a, just so you know, I'm in the process of doing this pilot project where we actually take students, uh, you know, as much as two years after a course. Right? And we try to basically see, uh, you know, what aspect of how they learn the material, you know, made it uh, so that they would remember the material or not. Um, so, yeah, great emphasis on retention of learning. Um, and by the way, those retention studies, as I said, they're, they're very difficult. So I understand why there's not that many of them, but we do need that. So what else? Um, a greater appreciation for, you know, knowledge of student thinking. So this is... Again, that, that's very risky when I start talking about this because it's one of the things I'm the most passionate about. It's, it's, <laughs> it's an insane blind spot that we have. Mm. Um, so when you think about this, for active learning, for someone to succeed when they implement active learning, they need three things. Number one, you need to have good content knowledge. That means if you're going to teach calculus, you need to know calculus. So thankfully... Uh, Unlike at the, at the K-12 level, unlike that, at the university level, everyone has an above threshold, you know, content knowledge. So that's good. So number one is not that much of a problem. But then you need two more things. You need, uh, obviously, some training about the active learning you're going to use. If it's peer instruction, you need some training for that so that it's implemented well. But the third thing is that you need knowledge of student thinking. I just gave you an example of that unbelievable TF, who's now a faculty member at UC Merced, by the way, Christina Callahan, like one of the best TF I've ever seen, uh, worked with. Uh, that person was able to successfully create sub-skills in one course. 
and for the same course, but for physics majors, where the student population just changed, you know, from life science majors to physics majors, all of a sudden the sub skills that she created did not work quite as well. So that just shows you the importance of knowing um, student thinking. So one of the, well, a big reason why the implementation of active learning is, I wouldn't say fail, but it's substandard uh, a lot of the time is that instructors lack knowledge of student thinking. Um, okay, I'm just going to say this. I, I have to say this. This is something I, I, lo I love to say in, in talks. Um, you know, all of us have expert content knowledge when it comes to, say, long division. And yet all of us would agree that if we go to one of those elementary schools, and even though we're expert at this and we're asked to teach long division to kids and we don't know how they think when they're learning long division, I mean, we're going to be the worst teachers in the entire state, right? <laughs> so, so it just tells you, right, this is a blind spot that we have. Um, you know, when uh, our departments, when we assign people to teach a course, the only thing we're concerned about is if they have good content knowledge. Right. Okay. Wait. Uh, this person knows quantum mechanics. Let's ask them to teach quantum mechanics. Uh, but people teach a course for two, three years. Finally, in the third year, they start having a feeling for student thinking, and then they hop on to another course. That's completely insane. I mean, the culture is just yeah. Like I said, I shouldn't be uh, working myself into a frenzy uh, for this topic. But then project learning. Um, yes, that is the future simply because uh, this is sort of uh, science education 2.0 that's slowly starting. So I'm oversimplifying here, but I would say, you know, science education 1.0 was really to, 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 to measure, you know, those increase in learning when we implement those evidence-based, you know, pedagogies, right? So that's, that's that's uh, science education 1.0, but 2.0 is really where we're starting to think about what skills are we actually teaching students? Are they the skills that actually matter, right? Um, and then, you know, the, the standard that we should use is, are we teaching students to think like expert physicists or expert chemists or biologists and so forth? And very often the answer is no, right? Um, so yeah, so this is something that's slowly starting. So uh, project-based learning, why, 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 why that's relevant? Well, it turns out that uh, when students are, um, you know, learning physics through doing projects, then naturally a lot of the, you know, skills they learn actually align very well with how expert scientists think, mm -hmm. right? When you mm -hmm. have to design something, an experiment to measure something, for example, everyone would argue that this is what expert scientists should be able to do um, so that that gives you a better feel i hope for why i said project-based learning is naturally where we're going uh, that's why and but but the challenges are just huge because the training required the knowledge of how students think you know so that the project-based learning is effective is just is cranked up like an order of magnitude so mm -hmm. sounds like a Sounds like the, a new episode that I have to that I have to do. Who should I interview for that one? <laughs> Eric Mazur. Uh, he's always uh, ten years ahead. So uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> instruction before it was uh, in vogue, and now he's doing. He's been doing 
project-based learning for a while now. Louis, thank you so much for this this conversation today. This has really been such fascinating topics for me. It's kind of really going into uh, almost kind of the metacognition side of, of, of learning, not focusing as specifically on certain strategies, but on, you know, why do these strategies work or when don't they work? And I think this is just so important. I've learned so much and I, I know my listeners will have learned so much. So thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're very welcome. Now we're officially done. Thank you, Louis, for providing so much of your time to humoring my questions and taking a closer look at many of your papers. If I could work you into a frenzy over education all day, I'd do it. Maybe we'll meet up at a conference someday. You can find links to the journal articles we referenced today and last episode in the episode show notes. Just scroll down on your podcast app or go to physicsalive.com slash Louis2, physicsalive.com slash Louis2, L-O-U-I-S with the number two. While you are at the website, you can leave questions and reflections in the comment box at the bottom of the page. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter. You can reach me there or at brad at physicsalive.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. These ratings help put Physics Alive on the radar so that other educators can find it. I also want to share that I have a Patreon page. If you find this podcast valuable, and if you have the means to help support the show, then please hop over to patreon.com slash physicsalive. Support tiers start at $2 per month, with a few higher tiers available for individuals and departments as resources permit. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Today's action step? Take one homework set, maybe the one you assigned most recently, and see if you can identify three key skills that students need to solve the more challenging problems. And then think about the deliberate practice that students could do to boost those skills. These are probably the one-dot questions in a typical physics text. Maybe you could just pick out a few for each skill. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. This episode with Louis is kicking off a series of interviews where I follow a trail of co-authors. Next up is, well, you'll find out soon enough. Until then, may you ever appreciate the benefit of strenuous cognitive effort and be well.